speak the charm of make charm of make charm of make charm. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Welcome back to the show. This is Reverend Eric, and my guest today is Jacob Budens, a queer author, multidisciplinary performer, educator, and witch with an MFA from the University of New Orleans and a BA from John Hopkins, whose work focuses broadly on the intersection of other of otherness and the otherworldly. The author of magic realist short story collection Tea Leaves and poetry chapbook Pastel Witcheries, Budens has fiction and poetry in traditional print journals, including Slipstream and Asarakis. Zeitgeisty online journals, including Taco Bell Quarterly and Wussy Mag, and lauded anthologies by Mason Jar Press and Unbound Edition. In addition to writing, Jake is the front person for Baltimore-based psychedelic witch-pop darlings Moth Broth and has received awards and accolades for original theater work, including a new adaptation of Mikhail Bulgakov's The Master and Margarita and an original cabaret play about immortality and the cultural icon of the witch, Samatha, a dream baby cabaret. Jacob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here, Reverend Eric. Oh, it's it's a pleasure to have you. I have to say, uh, your description of Moth Broth uh, would also make a really good band name. Psychedelic <laughs> Witch Pop Darlings. I think it could be, could be an excellent <laughs> band name. <laughs> so we're going to talk about a few different things today. Um, we're going to... St- we're going to um, start by kind of getting into your practice of Greco-Roman witchcraft and where that comes from and how you've sort of developed it and what it kind of means to you. Um, but then I think the thing that will be super interesting to build on that will be talking about the intersection of um, art and witchcraft and how you have practiced that in your writing and perhaps music and things like that. So Greco-Roman witchcraft... When you first uh, approached me and sent me that description, my mind immediately went to the PGM. But I had to stop and be like, wait, PGM. I don't know if we we can really call PGM uh, witchcraft in the sense that it gets used today, since it was more, since the theory is that it was mostly like, uh, you know, priests in the off season going down town to town doing, you know, peddling their wares. Whereas witchcraft kind of has an implication of like, otherness and transgressiveness that other forms of magic don't really have. So can you tell us sort of where you or where Greco-Roman witchcraft kind of comes from or or the the things that inspire you there? Yes, so I think you're hitting on something about Greco-Roman magic that's like one of the most important descriptions in like any of my scholarly or academic work or courses or presentations which is the difference between Hellenic spiritual practices, which to a contemporary person probably look and feel very witchy versus mm-hmm. what would have been considered sort of witchcraft at the time. So in the Greco-Roman world, until late Roman period, there wasn't really a word for a witch necessarily, or as we have it, Like, but as I would say Radcliffe Edmonds III and others define witchcraft for the Hellenic world, it is any kind of spiritual practice that was non-normative. And there was overlap, as you said, kind of transgressive. There was overlap between the two because like spells and curse tablets would invoke, you know, deities that were part of the sanctioned pantheon. But it was basically a way for an everyday person that is not a spiritual authority to kind of exert their will over the world. And so there is a a major distinction at the time between who was supposed to be practicing spirituality or an authority on it or petitioning and so forth. 
and then who was actually doing it, which was kind of everybody in different strata of life in the Greco-Roman world. Lots of people were practicing sort of spiritual practices that were not sanctioned by sort of government or religious authorities. Um, so when we think about some of the sort of flagship practices from an archaeological perspective. Uh, we think about like lead curse tablets. So people would scrawl their will and these incantations on yeah. these like sheets of mm -hmm. and then yeah. sometimes put in roll it up and put a nail through it. A lot of times they would bury the curse tablets in like a graveyard. That's kind of one of the spookier practices, but also practices of sympathetic magic and, you know, things like dolls or statues that you would exert your will over. Um, sympathetic magic is one of my favorite kind of cross-cultural things that appears in places that didn't have a lot of cultural exchange, but Greco-Roman oh, yeah, magic was like everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All over the place. And then, um, something really interesting uh, to me about cultural exchange between Egypt and the Greco-Roman world was like in both cases, kind of non-normative spiritual practices involved a little bit of like appropriation from the other culture's normative spiritual practices. So like Greco-Roman curse tablets, for instance, would kind of exoticize Egyptian spirituality. Um, but on the other hand, the same thing was happening in Egypt to people who were not with people who were not religious authorities, where they were kind of exoticizing like Greco-Roman deities and uh, entities. So there was a weird like witchy cultural exchange where they were both kind of like exoticizing each other through the lens of witchcraft. So there's okay, a lot there. <laughs> so so that's that's a really interesting take on it, especially since like over time that kind of turned into almost a religious syncretism, right? Where mm -hmm. where you might start by like stealing the gods of the mm -hmm. country across the Mediterranean Sea, but like 150 years later, you know, that god might become part mm -hmm. of a, a mainstream god and be mm -hmm. worshipped in a normal temple and stuff mm -hmm. and it that's fascinating that it happened sort of in the sense or that it, that one of the channels that it must have happened is through sort of like a sense of uh you know magic it was a transgressive mm -hmm. religious practice because it was not normal i have another question about this like one of the interesting archaeological things about about this the magic from back then is is stuff like um like the defixiones, like the curse tablets, like mm -hmm. there are tons and tons and mm -hmm. tons of them. And you described it as kind of a, a spookier practice, you know, the mm -hmm. where it would get buried in graves or, or you know, put in the bottom of wells and things mm -hmm. like that. But if it was, do you think it was common enough that it wasn't really considered super spooky? Was it kind of like, do you think it ever reached sort of a level of like everyday superstitious practice? You know, like every day you went to the Colosseum, you'd you'd get a sheet of lead and write a little curse tablet and shove it in a temple on your way there. Like, was that, did it become that common? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, and this is where some of, it, it comes a lot into my teaching practice in a completely, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say entirely unspiritual way, but in the sense of like, there's a lot of, um, this is such a juicy academic topic uh, for mm -hmm. me and for a lot of other people because there is like witchcraft and witches as they appear in ancient Greek and Roman literature and witchcraft as it was practiced. And there's a lot of disparity between who is depicted practicing witchcraft in stories and who archaeological evidence suggests was practicing it in real life. So in a way, it was very commonplace. In another way, at least literary evidence would suggest it was very stigmatized for people without divine blood, like a Medea or a Circe, to be trying mm -hmm. to exert magic and will and pharmaca and blending herbs in this way. So in a way, like it was both very common and literary evidence would suggest very taboo to do things like this, especially for educated people um, and wealthy people who were also engaging in witchcraft. Absolutely. There's so much evidence of like wealthy people trying to cast spells on other people. Um, but in polite society, it became kind of normalized to make fun of people who practice witchcraft and to associate witchcraft with otherness, with othered people. So with women, with in the Roman world, more in the Roman world with old women, the, the sort of crone thing, crone mm -hmm. archetype didn't really become a literary thing so much until the Roman world. But like a lot of the authors who are critical or lampooning or 
um, railing against witchcraft in one way or another. It's very often associated with people of the lower classes, with foreigners, with women, with anyone experiencing any kind of sort of alterity in that society. And again, Mm -hmm. archaeological evidence suggests it really was everybody. Um, If you received a spell or an aspect of pharmaca from a foreigner, it was maybe considered a little more credible um, because Western society loves to exoticize other cultures and add legitimacy to their mysticism or whatever. Yeah, um, I'm but, not sure yeah. that it's only Western society that does yeah, that. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Same with Egypt. I mean, Egypt was doing the same kind of. Ex- well, Egypt is physically the West, but in ter- it's not yeah. like white Europe or whatever. They were doing the same thing in the other direction. Um, at the time. I was actually. Just thinking of um, some of the uh, crypto Christianity that was happening in uh, Japan, you know, mm-hmm. like two thousand years <laughs> after what we're talking about. But mm-hmm. um, you know, when when Christianity was uh, made illegal in Japan, there was this sort of there was this movement of Christians creating these sculptures that looked like Buddhist saints or whatever. But if you look closer, they're they've got all this Christian iconography in them, and it was this sort of like you know, again, it's it's exoticized otherness. Yeah. And same, I mean, like so much of Celtic paganism was subsumed into like saint worship and things like Mm -hmm. that. It's why I would say Imbolc is probably my favorite pagan holiday because it's like the saint that was so transparently just like a goddess that they wanted to let people keep worshiping in my opinion. And they were like, yes, the goddess Bridget. Oh, but actually she was a Christian woman named Bridget and now it's her holiday. And it's like this inexplicable (laughs) Christian holiday that is kind of worshiping a deity of fire and dawn. Um, So Mm -hmm. a lot of that happened, you know, in, in Brittany and all of that. And through, you know, the kind of, unfortunately the sort of genocide and destruction of Celtic indigenous practices, but also the like, the like we're imposing this religion on all of you. And we understand that there are things that you're not going to give up worshiping on. So we're just going to kind of call them saints. Like I'm very fascinated (laughs) with that, Um, (laughs) which is reminding me what you're saying is reminding me of like that. Like I think a lot of Mm. saints personally are just adapted pagan deities that they were like, well, you can keep worshiping them or whatever. I've been really fascinated. And actually I've been, uh, sort of uh, leading a Valpurgisnacht celebration, which is kind of something that happens in the other direction, right? Like it was, it was May Day. So it was a pagan thing that got super Christianized by, you know, St. Valperga, and then totally kind of reversed. And Valpurgisnacht now is like a spooky witch night mm-hmm. where, it, where it, it, it's, it's, I don't know. It's the, I don't know, the, the badminton game of what's witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween for the spring. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you mentioned a few uh, sources, like primary sources, that have been kind of important in your in the development of your practice and understanding mm-hmm. of Greco-Roman witchcraft. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, but before we get into that, like I, I, I really enjoyed what you wrote to me about these things, and I love the kind of the spread of of pieces that you suggested. One of the things that I think is always important to keep in mind when looking at this kind of stuff is there's a there's sort of a line between reconstruction and what's the other R word that we use, like revitalization or, you know, it's hard for us to to reconstruct these practices entirely mm-hmm. because so much of it was oral tradition or so much of it was mm-hmm. um, almost kind of like transitory in nature, like it wasn't around for very long before getting subsumed into bigger culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe when you're talking about some of these things, you can talk about how those have sort of influenced you beyond kind of like your academic life and into mm-hmm. more of your personal practice and mm-hmm. personal understanding of the philosophy behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first is a, is a piece by uh, uh, Theocritus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. And this is one, um, I mean, this is the perfect intersection of like my academic pursuit of this and my spiritual philosophy around art making. Um, because when I first encountered idol two by theocritus which is colloquial known uh, colloquial excuse me colloquially known as uh the sorceress but is just his Mm -hmm. second found idol poem it's a sort of monologue poem from the perspective of a witch named saimitha she's sort of the play that i uh wrote and performed is inspired by her but not 
it's not her story necessarily. Um, but it's a vengeful love spell that is, it's basically a monologue poem. And for me, I think I encountered this at about 20 years old. And I was already pretty actively identifying kind of broadly as a witch and identifying basically myself as an artist, as a witch, uh, which is to say, if I could sum up that philosophy of spirituality, it's that to me, writing and reciting a poem is an incantation mm -hmm. all the time, if that's what you want it to be. So is performing a set of music. So is performing a play. It's like a set of ritual actions that's meant to achieve an intangible and often unseen effect. Um, so I already kind of had that in my brain at 20 years old, but I had never read a poem that was just a spell. And it kind of like expanded my whole world of poetry making and how I interface with presenting my writing in public of like, oh, if I read a poem in front of people, I'm casting a spell. So Theocritus really, ironically, really opened my brain and it's ironic because from a scholarly perspective, Theocritus was probably making fun of young women who cast spells on people. There are a lot of things tonally in the poem and in the character of Simetha and in her relative credibility in that poem that suggest that Theocritus was not necessarily pro-witchcraft, whether he thought it was something frightening or whether he thought it was something to be laughed at. Uh, is a topic of a lot of scholarly debate. But for me at 20, sympathizing, for me as a queer person, um, and no offense to any men listening, but for me as someone dating <laughs> men at 20 years old, a young woman casting an angry spell on a fuckboy who made a lot of promises he didn't keep to her. Not that I have ever done that. I don't do, I don't cast spells on people, but the desire oh, yeah, to yeah, do yeah. something I, to get no, back at a man, I was like, yeah, totally. Yeah. I'm totally with you. Yes, I, I am grinding this powder and it's his bones I smear and all of this. Like she's having kind of a mm -hmm. ritual catharsis around getting, not just getting dumped, um, but getting, uh, abandoned, getting ghosted. I mean, uh, Saimitha, Ideal 2 is about getting ghosted, which 2,000 years later at 20 years old, I was like, I've had many a man seduce me and make me promises about how much he is interested in me and then completely disappear. Like, I, her story is my story right now. Um, at 30, that's not the case. I might be the ghost uh, more often than not now. But, oh. Um, <laughs> oh, all those, all those, all those Siamethas out there after you now. <laughs> uh huh, exactly, exactly. Um, but like, yeah, I think, um, that poem in particular really opened up my world philosophically, even though the original author was at least to an extent sympathizing with this character, but also kind of lampooning the way that she was handling it. And um, there's even deeper lore, like uh, Lambert's uh, Desperate Saimitha makes the argument that from, by the standards of the day, her ritual was like completely botched and horrible and stupid. And like, it contains all these contradictions that anyone who knew anything about magic would know wouldn't have worked. I don't get too much in, I get in the weeds with that with my students. Personally, I, a man making fun of young women wrote something that really resonated with my spiritual practice and still resonates mm -hmm. with my spiritual practice, which is that, um, you know, the creation of a poem is both a spell and a catharsis. You are attempting to cast, you are attempting to have an effect on the world around you. And also you are having a catharsis for yourself. And that's what Saimitha to me is doing in that poem. Um, and mm -hmm. so it changed the way that I write poetry. It changed the way that I perform for people. And it's not to say that I don't have, I have spiritual and witchy practices that are, that are not art making that are like, you know, elements of moon worship and divination and like mostly Celtic mm -hmm. and Greco-Roman magic type of stuff in my uh, kind of private life, but in my public facing ritual and ritual magic, um, poems like Idol 2 really influenced uh, how I make work and, and what I view the role of the artist as a witch, basically. I think that that's the stuff that you said really makes sense. It, it's interesting when you you had a, a spot there where you were talking about Saimetha's 
uh, practice in the poem, but when I was hearing you, it sounded almost like you were kind of describing something that uh, Theocritus was doing also. Because, you know, he also, even though he might be writing this poem to like make fun of a young woman, he's still invoking imagery and mm-hmm. and creating it creating this world where this sort of mm-hmm. thing is happening and it's almost like uh his poem had as much of an effect on you as Semetha in in her in the imaginal world of Theocritus did mm-hmm. too that's which is kind of a an interesting two level thing happening there huh mm-hmm. the yeah it's interesting i mean that and um Euripides's Medea are both, you know, I say that they're lampooning or condemning aspects of femininity, but in both cases, I, there are people who consider both authors sort of proto-feminist in the sense that there were not really male writers writing about or from the perspective of women with any kind of sympathy. And even Mm -hmm. if both the character of Medea in Euripides and the character of Saimitha in Idol 2 um, are criticized or tonally like made not credible in certain ways, there's also a lot of sympathy for what they're going through. It's very clear, at least on some level, that the writers sympathize with these characters and maybe it doesn't condone mm-hmm. every, everything that they do. But like there is definitely reading the poem now, it is very clear that Delphus, Saimitha's ex-lover, is in the wrong. If you read Euripides, especially with the presence of the chorus, it's very clear Ugh. that uh, Jason is in the wrong, according to Euripides, um, and that yeah. he pretty much agrees with her up until she kills her own children, um, right. which, from a historical perspective, interestingly, is not necessarily canon to the Medea myth. Um, as uh-huh. far as we know, Euripides is the first person or first surviving work uh, depicting Medea also killing her children. Most other versions oh, I didn't of know the that. Myth. Yeah, so that's an interesting. Euripides either took that choice from somewhere else, had access to oral tradition that we don't have anymore. But regardless, it's the first surviving piece of writing where Medea does that, and previous versions of the myth that we still have don't have mm-hmm. her killing her children. So it's an interesting choice on his part. Um, but in both cases, I get so obsessed with this. I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> that it's oh, like, you do not need to apologize. I love that play. I, <laughs> yeah, um, me too. It's yeah, one of my, I mean, I, I, I would say, you know, I read a lot of Greek tragedy in uh, college, which was mm-hmm. a zillion years ago now. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think Medea was the one that always just stuck with me the most. Mm-hmm, like, me too. I I love the story of Medea. I I've always been obsessed with that. With that. So yeah, I I mean, and honestly, Jason was such a dick. Totally, <laughs> he, totally. I, those kids didn't deserve to get murdered, but Jason was such a dick. <laughs> totally. And there are versions of the myth in um in Pinder's version of the story of the Argonauts. Oh, this is another intersection between these two works. So um, Saimitha uses, uh, she refers frequently to a magic wheel or a spinning wheel. Most archaeologists believe like that this the... is a jinx wheel. Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, what What's the um, Hecate uh, wheel that, crap, I can't remember what it's called. There's some um, tool that is associated with Hecate, which is some sort of like spinning wheel on strings that you would use as sort of like a contemplative device or a trance building device. And I can't remember what that thing is called. Yeah, this one in, um, according to the scholars I've read about Idol 2, um, mm-hmm. what Saimitha is using would be called a jinx wheel um, after the nymph jinx who attempts to, I think, seduce Zeus and then is turned into a type of bird. And it's a wheel that makes a very loud sound that people use and spin to make somebody fall in love with them. Um, it's as far wow. as the the language goes, um, that's what scholars think Saimitha would have been using. And in Pinder's version of the Jason and the Argonaut myth, Jason uses a jinx wheel. Aphrodite teaches Jason to use a jinx wheel to make Medea fall in love with him so that she'll do all the things that oh. she does in her homeland to help him. And I don't know that that's necessarily canon either, but to me mm-hmm. it contextualizes... Medea's 
rage later in the play, which is that she has been bewitched by a person to fall in love with him. And to in the Greco-Roman world, to be in love with someone is to be in pain and to be enraged and to be mm-hmm. uh, angry and to act kind of crazy and to be sort of lovesick. And I mean, she she betrayed her whole family mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. nation to mm-hmm. run away with the Argonauts. And just, Chopped yeah. up her brother. Um, I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose... That might be a little bit of a red flag. Like, if you get into... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Medea was a, was, a, was a very strong female character. Like, it, 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 And the only way that anybody ever really showed strength in any of those mm-hmm. old Greek myths is by chopping people up. So right. that's kind of what you got to do. <laughs> right. Well, you know, Odysseus comes home and commits wholesale slaughter um, to yeah, all to all love. these yeah to all these men who think that he's dead and are by their own understanding engaging legally in the courtship of a woman and Odysseus is like I'm still alive baby and the solution is killing every single one of you and having my son help me do it and it's like that's cool <laughs> Odysseus is a hero for killing uh, t- dozens of people, I think dozens. I can't remember the exact number. Oh yeah, um, yeah. It was a huge. It was a really ridiculous number. <laughs> yeah, and he's yeah. a hero. I mean, yeah, hero. Hell, <laughs> Achilles beat up a river. <laughs> <laughs> also, gay icon Achilles. Also, you yeah. Know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that in in any of these stories. It is weird the extent to which some of these like kind of monstrous women whose monstrosity was being lampooned or at least was under scrutiny really resonated Mm -hmm. with me. But I was like, obviously, I would never do any of the stuff that they're doing. But like, I know what it's like to feel this way about something a man has done to you. (laughs) Maybe we all do. Maybe we all know how it feels to feel betrayed in love and to want to like destroy, you know? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the last piece that you talked about was um, the Golden Ass, Apuleius. Mm-hmm. That's a different kind of story, uh-huh. uh, mostly told from the the man's point of view. It, uh, I don't remember all the details of it, but is there is there a is there a female character in that story? Does the the main character, the guy, who gets turned into a donkey? Oh mm-hmm. yeah, of course, he gets turned into a donkey. Yeah. He's, <laughs> Can you tell tell us a little bit about that uh, story's um, relationship with your practice or how that inspired you? Yeah, I mean, for me, Apuleius is more of a historical and academic exercise in the sense of like, there are a lot of, well, from uh, the perspective of a fiction writer, um, Mm -hmm. and of course, fiction and storytelling is also myth-making to me. Um, As far as we know, The Golden Ass is the first thing the first surviving work of picaresque in Western society. So like we, Mm -hmm. we kind of in Western society, we, we more or less owe the novel as far as we know, probably it wasn't the first one, but it's the first surviving one to this Mm -hmm. completely absurd, um, extremely horny story about a man (laughs) who, um, is really interested in witchcraft goes to Thessaly to learn about witchcraft and then gets basically it's very curiosity killed the cat he gets turned into mm-hmm. a donkey he goes through a number of trials and tribulations as a result of it and then in the end there are a lot of women that he encounters along the way um but in the end he is uh, basically converted away from his curiosity about magic and inducted into the cult of isis and osiris isis mm-hmm. appears to him I think in a dream, but also kind of on the beach, maybe not in a dream, and is like, I'm going to help you not be a donkey anymore, but you have to abandon your whoring ways and stop being interested in witchcraft and join my cult. And he's like, sounds great, and has kind of a religious conversion. But it's very farcical story. It's where we first get the image of the witch as like horny crone. There are witches, yeah. There are witches of various ages, but like pretty much all, all but one of the witches that he encounters are pretty much cougars. Like they're all just like Mm -hmm. 
middle age or older women entrapping young kind of submissive men into, um, you know, an arrangement with them. And so it is in a way very not pro witch as a work, but Apuleius's life was under scrutiny with respect to his own possible relationship to witchcraft. Apuleius is a figure, the other major surviving work of his is the Apologia, in which he mm-hmm. is in a trial to defend himself against allegations of witchcraft from the family of a young woman who accused him of using witchcraft to entrap her into, um, because he, uh, she came from a lot of money and he benefited a lot from her money. And then her family was like, you cast a spell on her. And what follows is a trial in which Apuleius gets off scot-free by kind of ironically demonstrating an extremely in-depth knowledge of magic and witchcraft that to an external reader would suggest that he probably was a witch or at least was very interested in it from an academic perspective. But he weaponizes that knowledge within the confines of a legal system to get free. But so this is an ironic contrast to the golden ass in which a character experiences sort of a religious conversion away from witchcraft and into a sanctioned sort of cult of a goddess and then ultimately a god whereas in real life this was a person who was accused of witchcraft and whose defense of witchcraft to the average scholar almost kind of proves that he was probably a witch um but he won the trial so I don't, I, Apuleius is not as much integrated into my, my own magical practice or inspiration around magical practice so much as it's a, he's a really interesting historical figure of someone who was probably kind of a witch, um, and kind of got in trouble for it and, and saved himself. But, um, yeah, but the golden ass is amazing. It's in the sense that all art making is a religious experience for me. I do believe we kind of owe in the Western picaresque to Apuleius. It's also very experimental in form. It's very metafictional. Um, the narrator is very untrustworthy. And then there are like several chapters where it's just the myth of Cupid and Psyche rendered in beautiful detail mm-hmm. that he's hearing in a cave in the middle of the story. Um, so there's a lot in there that's really interesting and a lot that kind of has helped fill in some gaps about some of the surviving myths of the time and stuff. Like, I think it's the most comprehensive writing about Cupid and Psyche from the time period, uh, which is pretty Mm -hmm. interesting. Um, But yeah, not super, not a super religious text for me. Um, The Apologia kind of is because there are, there's knowledge about uh, pharmaca. Well, they wouldn't, he wouldn't have called it pharmaca in the Roman world, but there's knowledge about the practices of the time that I think can be very instructive for people who Mm -hmm. are curious about those practices. Um, But also Apuleius was, he he was like such a troll in a lot of ways, in my opinion. (laughs) And the the Apologia in tone is kind of trolly. It's it's a little bit wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, well, if I were a witch, I could have done this, 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 and this, but I didn't do that. Um, So it's kind of, it's like pretty, a pretty fascinating text for this, you know, for Greco-Roman magic and what has survived. Um, I should clarify my own witchy greco-roman practices are probably more in line with regular hellenic spiritual practices like i don't get into the um i don't get into the lead curse tablets and the um the kinds of potions and things that happened then are like pretty hazardous mixtures of Mm -hmm. materials um that i probably wouldn't feed to anybody i also probably wouldn't feed people a potion without their consent or any of that stuff um so some of the witchy stuff it's like the way that it's aged is that like from a public health standpoint, it's pro- like messing around with like strips of lead is like probably not something I would recommend <laughs> to people yeah, without yeah. A, a lot of care and consideration. So I have, I, I have absorbed some Hellenic spiritual practice and, you know, archetypes and deities that I work with and stuff like that. Um, but mm-hmm. not so much some of the, some of the taboo stuff I have nothing against the taboo, but I am like, yeah, I don't know that I would mix those herbs together and try to feed it to somebody. I don't think it would be a very good idea. <laughs> There's definitely a consent issue there. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> One of the things about uh, Apuleius that uh, I think is 
interesting given some of the stuff we talked about earlier is um, it involves the the cult of Isis in Rome or, you know, in the, in the Roman empire. Mm -hmm. And that's one of those things that must have started as mm -hmm. uh, kind of an otherness, right? Like yes. uh, people on the Northern side of the Mediterranean taking practices or worship of Isis and probably having it as sort of like a, an illicit uh, religious or witchcraft practice or magical mm -hmm. practice that eventually became big and popular enough mm -hmm. that it became another state cult. Mm -hmm. It was so legit that, uh, for readers of the time, Apuleius converting to the cult of Isis would have been, or sorry, the the character Lucius, who is most definitely yeah. not Apuleius himself, whose name was also <laughs> Lucius, uh, or whatever. You but know, like, nobody can hear your finger quotes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. So the character's Allegedly. name... Allegedly. The, the narrator's name is Lucius. Apuleius's full name is Lucius Apuleius, but it's a work of fiction. Um, but Lucius converting <laughs> to the cult of Isis would have really legitimized him as a character to people. Another mm -hmm. fascinating thing about this book is that it does dovetail with other mystery cults that existed at the time that Apuleius was clearly condemning as well. There are a lot of like, there are a handful of orgiastic cults that Lucius mm -hmm. as a donkey gets kind of uh, enslaved by he uh, Lucius just gets in when he's a donkey subjugated by a lot of different kinds of people and some of them treat him well and some of them treat him badly and there's like a definitely a cult of very horny people that get their hands on him for a while there's a bunch of people that try to make him have sex with a woman in front of an audience it's like really a body um i teach it to 18 year olds too they're like okay we're into the weird sex stuff um and they're <laughs> like i had to in one of my classes in on my canvas course in the forum publish a clarification about how normalized bestiality would have been in the Roman empire. And I had a moment of leaving my body and being like, my life is that I'm posting a clarification in a community college class about bestiality. Like, cool. Um, but, well, but how normal was bestiality in the Roman empire? Not very. That's like kind okay, of, a, okay. um, yeah, it was, you know, uh, Colosseum activity to torture and humiliate people sometimes we believe uh. um but oh, where was i going with this oh but one of the cults that uh one of the cults that lucius encounters as a donkey that apuleius seems to condemn has a lot of similarities to christianity which was not well enough established to be normalized oh. yet and he was like oh and then there's this other mystery call and they're all so stupid and whatever i'm not stupid but there's he kind of really briefly lampoons the emerging cult that and that we believe ended up being Christianity, which is kind of an interesting wow. thing about that text too, or a mystery cult that probably through syncretism was absorbed into the practices of Christianity. It might've been like a Mithraean cult, which um, Christianity, Roman Christianity kind of absorbed a lot of like, you know, people refer to Mithras yeah. as kind of proto-Christian in a way, but it's, it's a chicken or egg argument. But anyway, mm -hmm. um, a fascinating feature of this book is that Apuleius makes fun of Christ what seems to be Christianity and at the time was still kind of a fringe cult as the cult of Isis probably was well before this book was written. And then, you know, these right, cults right. just sort of rise to prominence. Yeah. By the time of uh, Apuleius, I think there was, wasn't there already a temple of Isis in Rome by then? I think so. Yes, yeah. I think so. I yeah. th it was very. I think it was very in vogue to be into Isis and Osiris when um, Apuleius was writing this. I think it's always in vogue to be into Isis and Osiris. Me too. <laughs> and Nephthys. Let's not forget Nephthys. Yeah, let's another side Nephthys. of that story. <laughs> but we can forget Set, the jerk. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so we've got a really, really good background mm -hmm. of of the stuff that has kind of inspired you to look into Greco-Roman mm -hmm. witchcraft. You've also kind of given us some some sort of like caveats or modifiers that sort of talk about how you may have adapted all this stuff to a more modern, uh, less lead-based practice mm -hmm. with probably fewer poisonous herbs, uh, less heavy metals, mm -hmm. less cursing, mm -hmm. less... Uh, Less coercive love magic, um, but but throughout all of these, uh, the 
concept of love magic has kind of been a an, an ongoing and ever present theme. Mm-hmm. Can you can you talk a little bit about how the impression that I get about love magic in the in in the late classical world mm-hmm. is that it was rarely friendly. Mm-hmm. A lot of the love magic was coercive, mm-hmm. was sort of done without consent, mm-hmm. was was trying to warp other people's will. Like mm-hmm. if it if it if it was effective, it was it was definitely a kind of a form of of sexual violence. Uh-huh. Oh, absolutely. Um, can you talk about how that sort of practice or that sort of theme or, you know, just love magic in general, how can that possibly translate into a modern practice in a way that would be um, ethical? Yeah. I mean, I think the short answer to that question is probably it can't. I Well, <laughs> I, you know, love <laughs> magic comes up a lot in our discussion, I think because these texts are, these literary texts are very rooted in exploring the question of love magic, which was a pretty narrow margin of Greco-Roman witchcraft, but it is the margin of it that is most represented in literature. So in short, I would say you're absolutely right. There's, it's to me, in a lot of ways, sexual violence and regular violence, something that people will notice if they read Theocritus as well as read cursed tablets of um, what Radcliffe Edmonds III calls obtaining spells. This is a terminology for spells that are specifically meant to make somebody be in love with you, as opposed to a love spell that is meant to retain a lover or to restrain a rival or to improve. Also, it was considered love magic to like have aphrodisiacs and stuff like that. Um, but obtaining magic as Edmonds puts it, appears most in literature and is quite violent. And I think for the modern reader of something like Idol 2, immediately my students, for instance, are all like, well, Theocritus wants us to think Simetha is bad because this spell is really violent. But historically speaking, love in the Greco-Roman world was violent, painful, causing of physical illness, literal lovesickness. It was just believed that if you were in love with somebody, you were in physical pain and you were sick. So you'll notice in a lot of these obtaining spells, and then the cure for that is to have sex with the person. So you'll notice in a lot of cursed tablets that are sort of of the obtaining nature, there's all of these like, and may fire crunch against the bones of my the object of my desire and may there be crushing pain in their head and all of their hair fall out and all of this stuff and it is quite just physically these spells are quite physically violent and so that you know in and of itself i think cannot be adapted to a contemporary practice it also isn't really well adapted into a contemporary vision of what love is and what you know, lust is. So some mm-hmm. of the the violent nature of this these spells is just sort of culturally motivated by how people view viewed by how people viewed love and desire at the time. Um and then on the other side of that in a contemporary sense, the only contemporary type of love spell I would personally condone, not to say other people are not free to do as they choose is something broadly to attract a type of person to you or a type Mm -hmm. of romantic relationship or a type of feeling to be evoked within a relationship that's not person specific. And I will say the, the pop culture example of this, which is very cheesy in practical magic, when she's like, I want a man who has one blue eye and one brown eye and can flip pancakes with one hand or like whatever the I'm paraphrasing, but that kind of, Obviously not that. That's a very cheesy um, pop cultural reference. But a spell that's like, this is the type of relationship I would like to have, or this is the type of thing I would like to attract in my life, that's about as far as I would condone on a contemporary level any kind of love magic. And uh, there is not much in the Greco-Roman tradition to pull from for that kind of magic that prioritizes consent and does not there are a lot of the Greco-Roman love magic. There is an object of your desire. And that mm-hmm. to me on a contemporary level, that's a type of magic I don't I don't practice. The only magic that I will ever practice that involves a target is 
protection against somebody or binding from harm or things like that, which is a gray area right. even for some people. But um, yeah, so I would, that was a very long winded answer. The short answer is uh, if there are listeners out there being like, I am inspired to look into Greco Roman love magic, um, do what thou wilt, etc. Don't say that I encouraged you to do it because I don't, I don't, I, I don't think there's really an ethical way to do it. Yeah. I, I would agree. And, I, but I do think that, uh, you know, I'm in the middle of reading, um, ancient Christian magic, which mm. is a collection of demotic, uh, spells cool. from, you know, a little bit later than what we're talking about. But, uh, there's a great chapter in there with love spells and love curses mm -hmm. that is delightful to read. And you would be horrified by the idea of doing any of that to, mm -hmm. to another human being. Mm -hmm. You're sort of like, Oh my God, I want it, <laughs> their penis to do what? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs> Yeah, there's a spell in um, Ogden. O Ogden has a Daniel Ogden has a sort of a source book of uh -huh. different. Just it's not really a coherent text. It's just like here's the categories of types of magic that we have surviving archaeological evidence for. And there's uh -huh. one type of spell called a vulva key in the Greco-Roman time, where it's like you make some kind of lotion to put on your vagina and then when you have sex with a man he'll never be able to have enough of you and he will always want to have sex with you um which to me is almost that's kind of like you know grayer to me like not terrible it's like oh, i'm gonna put a lotion on myself that like if he consents to having sex with mm -hmm. me it's gonna be the best sex of his life and he's gonna want it for the rest of his life that still to me i wouldn't I wouldn't condone. And also any of the herbal mixtures of the Greco-Roman period, just from a public health standpoint, I would not recommend there are that you put terrifying them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> horrifying. Horrifying. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you've mentioned you've you've done a lot of poetry writing. Mm -hmm. I know you do you do music. Mm -hmm. Um You've uh, you've published a lot, uh, an impressive amount of stuff. Thank you. <laughs> and your magical practice, or your your sort of like your spiritual life, has uh, has a really had a really big impact on your art. Mm -hmm. um, and I can hear in your voice when you're talking about some of these classical texts mm -hmm. uh, how much how much you've been kind of like influenced by art of the past. Mm -hmm. um, how have you sort of carried that thread through, like? Can you can you give us a little bit of um, detail, or maybe detail is the wrong word, but can you talk a little bit about uh, how that magic has influenced your approach to art and the creation of art? For sure. I mean, the first and I would say most direct connection between what we've been talking about and what I do is that after I read Theocritus, I started experimenting with spell as poetic form, which is not groundbreaking. I'm not the first poet to do that as sincerely as I'm doing it. Um, but that was the mind expanding thing for me. And when I set out to write a poem of that nature, I am not attempting to cast that kind of spell. I am attempting to build a world in which people sympathize with somebody that might have wanted to, to do that to themselves. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in my poetry chapbook and in, I think Asarachus was the first place to publish it. Um, I wrote a ritual when I was younger that was, it was really a poem about femmes or gay men or people who otherwise exist within the male gaze do horrendous things to their body to be appealing to men. And so it's a, it's a ritual summoning of a, of a demon of plague to drink the fat from your body and be extremely skinny to be appealing to men. And obviously I do not want that for myself. I do not want that for anybody, but I have poems about that. I, a lot of my, a lot of my ritual poems or spell work poems are access points to explore sort of body horror related to the queer experience or to the trans experience mm -hmm. or to the um, just gender queer experience. So that's kind of my poetic, in my poetic practice, there's not all of my poems are in the format of a type of spell. And there's certainly never rhyming spell. I don't really write rhyming poetry. I hardly even write rhyming lyrics in in my, uh, in my <laughs> band or like I reticently write rhymes into 
our songs because it's technically pop music and you need to give people a little something that they can like feel mm-hmm. familiar with. Um, but yeah, I think we call that the hook. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> but like, so I'm, you know, they're not like, uh, uh, thrice to thine and thrice to mine type of spells. Um, but I will describe a set of ritual actions through poetry that evokes things like that. Um, I also think I view the practice of writing poetry and fiction as somewhat divinatory in my own life. And to what extent that is self-fulfilling prophecy and to what extent that is a channeling of a warning or message about something that's going to happen in my life or Mm -hmm. to what extent I am manifesting things that happen in the future. I don't, I don't have an answer to that question, but I certainly have, you know, that's, I I don't know if you've really um, explored this very much, but in, uh, in the realm of chaos magic, Mm -hmm. there are, uh, quite a few um, artists and musicians mm-hmm. who kind of explore that sort of thing mm-hmm. in various forms of, uh, you know, like the idea of like the hyper sigil or, mm-hmm. or sort of like art as a, you know, reality bending construct mm-hmm. sort of thing like that, that, that happens a lot out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, the one of the only reasons I don't call myself a chaos magician, which is probably what I am, is I think sometimes there's a certain connotation that goes with that. There's so I would say there's a certain political connotation that can come with mm-hmm. chaos magic um, that I don't identify with. And over the years, since I started performing ritual with my solo act, over the years, I have become much more conscious about not putting things out into the world that can be harmful while also mm-hmm. producing ritual catharsis. So like my solo act is about 80% very spooky, almost Diamanda Galassi, like clangy piano covers. And then I read poem as ritual in between, sometimes light candles, sometimes talk about the cosmos and why what is going on in the cosmos might be resonating with what people are going through at the moment. Um, it's a little culty. I admit it's a little bit culty, but, uh, but it's all for <laughs> the purpose of amazing. I want to see this. Um, and people are, are you coming it. to Portland anytime soon? I would love to, I would absolutely love to <laughs> actually, I am thinking about trying to do West coast tour. Cause I did a book tour last year, mostly through places that are drivable from Baltimore and like West coast. I'm trying to come to the West coast later in the year, but, um, yeah, it's so for that act in the past, I have done rituals that are very dark. I have not engaged when I was like in my early twenties, for instance, I have not necessarily engaged in the kind of protective practices that would shield people from what I'm conjuring, um, nor have I protected myself. And so in that way, I was probably emphatically and exclusively a chaos magician when I was like 22. And then over the years, Mm -hmm. I've been like, if I'm going to do something that dark, I need to put a circle of salt around myself and also get like, I don't know, maybe not do that and take that on myself always. Cause I would do stuff like this. And then I would be like physically sick for a couple days or like, I used to do this like demon of lust ritual that people were really into, but then a few Mm -hmm. people were like, like I would have them participate in this Yiddish incantation and all of this stuff. But I've had a few people after I did that who willingly participated in it have two or three days later, lovers quarrels or terrible dreams or things that they'll tell me. And they're not trying to call me out for it. They're like, often very skeptical people, but they're like, something really crazy happened after you did that like thing. And we all did it and chanted with you. And ever since then I was like, Oh, whoa, I need to maybe not, even if I'm, even if it's not a true spell and I'm just giving people bad dreams, like that's antithetical to what I want to be doing. (laughs) Yeah. You know? Um, so I'm a lot more careful, you know, now, but, Mm -hmm. and I'm a lot more, um, regimented about and about explaining what I'm doing to people. If I do something in public that I'm inviting them to participate in and a little more regimented about what effect we want it to have together. Um, so Mm -hmm. I'm a little less chaotic, but I do subscribe to the chaos magic view of like art is a bending of the world around you. And I put that into my work intentionally 
knowing that even if I wasn't, I would still consider what I was doing to be a spell. So there is esoteric, supernatural, and cantatory stuff in my work that pulls from a variety of spiritual traditions and mythic archetypes and things like that. Um, but also just philosophically speaking, like my book, my collection of short stories is not, there's not an explicit spiritual practice in each story, but I would say pretty much every story contains some little sliver of esoteric philosophy or some kind of reflection on the reality of the hidden world and the relationship between what we experience in the world that is unseen and psychological and like what is magical about the world and often and often goes overlooked or unseen and stuff like that. that in a way I consider my short story collection to be a bit of a spiritual manifesto, but it's also a collection of literary magic realist stories about, you know, queer and gay people and trans people and whatever. Mm -hmm. So a lot to unpack. I, sorry, I just completely blabbered about a few different things that I do, but um, I, I thought that was amazing. I, uh, <laughs> so let's, t let's back up and, and talk about a few of those things in particular. So you were talking a little bit about, um, your solo act. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you tell us like, is it music and poetry? Like mm -hmm. what, what's sort of the form of it? What would people see if they were there watching you perform? Yeah. Most of the, t it's, it's rooted in music. I, less so than my band, I consider it more performance art, that uses mm -hmm. music as the primary medium. So I will perform five to seven songs usually. And in between each song, I will almost certainly read poetry slash spell work. And I will very often kind of narrativize what's happening spiritually. And I will very, very often start and end with some kind of invocation that people are invited to participate in, but not required to. And that part of it is much less fixed than the rest. I have probably a repertoire right now of 30 to 40 songs. Very few of them are my own music. Wow. And a lot of them are just songs I've learned over the years. And I will decide what songs I want to do based on what I want to do ritually. And I'll narrate it over the years I've gotten enough feedback to understand that it helps if I narrativize what's going on spiritually. So I try to do that a little bit um, without over explaining what I'm doing. So that's a music act. And it's just, it's usually just me and a piano and various ritual objects, sometimes candles, sometimes some incense. And the, the, the vibe of the music is usually like I'm cl clanging and crashing on the piano and singing in a sort mm -hmm. of like haunted housey operatic uh, a wannabe operatic style. Are there videos of this online? Yes. It's hard. It's kind of hard to document, but on my bigger yeah. portfolio and on my website, I have a few like little clips. Um, and then I All have, right. Right. I have a few backing tracks that I'll perform with. Cause the other side of this act is sometimes I just like MC shows and put shows together where like, I might not do a set. I might do a few like cabaret numbers that are like, witchy and wacky so there's another side of it that's just like i host shows um mm -hmm. sometimes that i organize sometimes that somebody else organizes and i'll just dress up like a disgusting vampire and like um sing with a backing <laughs> track that i've made of like spooky uh music i've been really into my one sort of singly song that i wrote last year is called goth bitch and it's just like a five minute sort of making fun of myself for being a tacky slutty goth um so that's fun and like much less ritualistic and much more like let's let's make fun of our tendencies to spiritualize our sluttiness a little bit um so it covers a lot of ground but a traditional set for this act is me playing piano singing talking probably about the moon and the stars and reading mm -hmm. ritual poetry and maybe lighting some candles or sprinkling some powders or whatever, um, depending. Uh, do you find difficulty in allowing um, sort of the, the formality and kind of like uh, stiffness of your academic work and your academic approach to some of the, these classical sources in letting that inspire your art? Like how do you, how do you overcome that, that barrier between, formality and the freedom you need to create. Yeah, I think when I teach about 
witchcraft and magic, I view mm-hmm. it kind of as a fun, in a way it's a manifestation to, I shouldn't say this on a hot mic, but like some of my students have left my witchcraft class being like, this class made me get really into witchcraft. Uh, and now I read tarot, um, which is not necessarily what I'm setting out to do. Um, uh-huh. and I certainly would never admit that I'm setting out to do that. Um, but even the <laughs> class itself to me is so fun. I teach it's, I'm basically, when I teach this stuff, it's writing and literature, it's like writing and research. Mm-hmm. So I'm teaching right. students how to analyze texts and we're having fun and interesting conversations about this stuff. And, um, it's not in a way it's very separate from my artistic practice in that, like, I'm also learning about it too, by teaching it. I guess my my academic pursuit of this is very fun for me and I try to with my students I try to approach it in a very fun way. I I choose it as an academic topic because I'm passionate about it and because I think for first year writing students it's something even if they're not interested in the occult makes a fun story for them to tell their friends like oh in my English class we talked about like sex magic today. Like to me it's like it's almost teaching these topics is almost is almost performance art to me in a different way of like oh i'm I'm performing as like cool mom professor that teaches the kids about like this really horny greco-roman book about a guy that turns into a donkey or whatever um so Uh i i guess i'm very playful in how i present the work academically and then a nice side effect is that it forces me to look into a lot more primary and secondary historical sources about these practices and then like i learn about stuff that i might integrate into my magical practice or my work but like i don't have to i don't feel like Oh, I have to discover things that I'm going to use. I'm just like, oh, I have to find things that my students will find interesting to write and analyze about, if that makes sense. No, no, that that makes sense. It does make sense. When you were mentioning uh, playing uh, all these songs that you've sort of like learned over the years, uh, I wanted to suggest to you that uh, maybe the Erie Canal song might be a good addition to your repertoire. You know, it's got a mule in it, so it's sort of... Apuleius adjacent. Yeah, I will definitely think about that. I do sometimes, I very rarely read from texts that are not my own, but I do sometimes, um, like I have, I have performed Idol 2 by Theocritus, um, uh-huh. as part of, well, it's, it's one of the found in Sinetha. It's like happens in the beginning and it's wrapped up in kind of a monologue about, um, how men write about witches and what fears mm-hmm. they're projecting onto women and femmes and stuff like that. So I have wondered how I could tie Apuleius into something because it's so, it's like so juicy and undertapped in the world of mm-hmm. I, everything. I think, I think like more people should know that like if you really take novels seriously, you should read the closest early thing to a novel we have and it's about a horny donkey. Um, <laughs> you know, so I will definitely Erie Canal. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna put that it's in a my Shrek brain. Sequel, basically, <laughs> you heard or it a here Shrek first. prequel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm perpetually like, man, I've been ten years doing this act. That's so many covers. Like, how much material is really out there for this? Um, but mm-hmm. more and more Erie Canal. I'm gonna take a more look and at. More. this has been a really amazing conversation i'm wondering do you uh like where can people find your stuff online i'm sure they already know to look in the show notes for this but but why don't you tell them where they can find your stuff yeah i will say first and foremost that um if you order tea leaves by jacob budens you can read a bunch of wacky stories you can find it kind of anywhere books are sold if you want to buy it from a local bookstore you can call them and ask them to order it for you um but you can also get it on you know amazon and shit if you if if that's if that's the best for you um the audiobook is coming out in mid february which i'm very excited about and then if you want to like follow the broad schema of my weird performance art life uh at dream baby jake on instagram is usually where i post about most of what i'm doing um but yeah if you want to do anything and you have a website too what's your website address jakebearts.com j-a-k-e-b-e-e-a-r-t-s.com um instagram is a little more up to date because it's like i will i'll update my website like once or twice a year 
but I'll always post about what's next on Instagram and stuff, um, which I know how okay. that sounds. That's Great. very millennial of me, but um, but it's an easy repository. <laughs> but aren't you a millennial? I am she. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's okay. It's okay to do millennial stuff if you're a millennial. Yeah, yeah. It's a yeah. good Instagram is a good um, networking tool for music and stuff like like I I book a lot it of is. shows using yeah. Instagram and stuff. Thank you very much for being on. Uh, this was a really interesting conversation. I think we're probably going to have to do a part two one of these days so we can get a little bit deeper into the art and witchcraft thing. Yes. Because um, I, I spent way too long into uh, like finding out more about the Greco-Roman witchcraft and how it is sort of translated into the modern day, which is a super fascinating topic. But I really want the listeners to know that you've got a lot more to offer that your your art and your writing is is uh is really amazing and that they should they should go check it out thank you so much i would love that very much i feel like i didn't i talked almost not at all about my actual spiritual practices and was like this is i know we, we, didn't, I we, we ran out of time <laughs> <laughs> but yeah part two so, sounds yeah, great we will okay we'll 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 have to set that up and uh and with that thank you for being on hey thank you so much for having me this was awesome This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Vanessa Irena, and I'm really excited to announce my new store, Sword and Scythe, where I'll be offering magical art, materia, and services beneath Mars and Saturn. You can visit the store at swordandscythe.com and be sure to sign up for the email list to receive early access to new releases.